book of Titus. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, according uh, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this reason, I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the word as he's been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and patience, that the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all, uh, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hate, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of our God and Savior towards uh, men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs, heirs according to the uh, hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and in these things I want you to affirm constantly, 
that those who believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis to you or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for there I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Xenius the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let all our people learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All those who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. As you look at Titus, Titus is one of these preaching epistles. Uh, um, a lot of the world calls them pastoral epistles, speaking of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus speaking about how it is that uh, a church ought to operate and how it is that uh, the preacher ought to relate to a congregation. Titus is a personal letter to Paul, or by Paul, rather, to a minister in Crete by the name of Titus. It is brief. We read it here in about five minutes, and it focuses on the responsibilities of a minister uh, to make sure that the work of the Lord is going forward in terms of things like leadership, in terms of things like upholding truth, in terms of things like making sure that Christians of all ages behave honorably and obediently. And so you have, in chapter 2 especially, general commandments to, well, older men, older women, younger men, and you have, there's a, uh, an understanding that this is the way that the church ought to operate, and this is the way that the minister ought to relate to the congregation and helping them uh, realize what it is that, uh, that God wants them to do and be. A couple of key words to note in this, uh, in this epistle. I've given you key words. The, uh, the word be or is, um, the state of being, this is that. The word is or be. Used 16 times in these three chapters. 16 times. Be or is. The word God is used 13 times. 13 times. God is used 13 times. The word works. Works eight times. The word faith is used six times. Works is used eight times. Faith is used six times. Word Savior. Savior is used six times. The word word or message. Word or message is used five times. Word or message is used five times, and man, man is used five times. If we take those key words, those uh, by occurrence, by how many words occur each time, put them together in a sentence, we might get something like this. God's grace is seen in the Savior's message. God's grace is seen in the Savior's message. God's grace is seen in the Savior's message is for a man to be instructed about faith and works. What's Titus trying to communicate to these people? The grace of God that's seen in the Savior's message is for us as man, as Christians, to be instructed about faith and works. Faith and works. What's the relationship between the two? 
God's grace is seen in the Savior's messages for man to be instructed about faith and works. What's the relationship between faith and works? All right, if you have faith, you're going to show it by your works. Where do I read that in the Bible? In the book of James, what chapter? Say two. <laughs> James chapter two. Well, James all the way through, right? Uh, don't be deceived. Um, uh, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Uh, James chapter one, verse 22. James chapter two. If a man says he has faith but doesn't have works, can that faith save him? He goes on a, a long, um, uh, long dissertation to talk about you know, the example of faith as seen through obedience through uh, works okay when you see the word works in scripture especially in books like romans what you have to do is ascertain what type of works he's talking about okay because the way paul uses the word works in certain epistles is maybe not the same way as he uses works in a different epistle and what you have to do is let the context determine what kind of works he's talking about in romans especially what he wants to communicate is that man is justified by faith in Christ. And that's absolutely true. And then he'll say, not by works. Well, I've got to ask the question, what kind of works is he talking about? In talking to those Christians, especially those, uh, those Jewish Christians that have come out of Judaism, they might be tempted to think that it's my works of merit. That I'm doing things as a Christian to merit God's favor. Well, is favor something that can be merited? It's not. Favor is something that's been bestowed by God, but it's not something to be merited. So the question is, do I have these works of merit? Can I pull myself up spiritually by my own bootstraps and show myself to God and say, God, you owe me salvation because of how good I've been? The answer is no. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not enough good works that I can do to merit my own salvation. That's a work of merit. However, when we get over here to Titus, and he's talking about the relationship of faith and works, what kind of works is he talking about? Works that you do because of your faith. Works of obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Because I love God and because I appreciate the greatness of his salvation, therefore I am going to work in the way God wants me to work. I have willingly submitted myself to him as his disciple, as Christ's disciple, and because of that I'm going to walk the way Christ wants me to walk. Again, as a disciple, brothers and sisters, we put ourselves under the yoke of somebody or something that, uh, that we're going to devote our lives to. And just talking about discipleship in general, when you find somebody who is a Hindu disciple, they're a disciple of that religion, that Hinduism. You wouldn't think much of a Hindu disciple that had a cheeseburger every Saturday, would you? Why? Because that's part of the tenets of what they believe. That's not a work that's befitting the uh, faith of that religion. But as we talk about Christians and what befits works and obedience... God's message here through Paul to Titus to give to this church is this. God's message of salvation, as seen through the message of Jesus Christ, is to instruct the church properly about faith and about works. God's grace is seen in the Savior's messages for us to be instructed about faith and works. 
Key verse of the book, I would say, if I was just uh, going to assign one, it's probably chapter 2 and verse 1. Chapter 2 and verse 1. As for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. What is sound doctrine? Healthy teaching. What is healthy teaching designed to get us to do as Christians? Works. Works of obedience. To act on our faith. To act on what we receive and put that into practice. Paul's admonition to this preacher Titus is to say you go on and you speak the things which are going to help encourage the church to proper obedience. Brothers and sisters, it's all here. You're going to flip back a page to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped. How much is thoroughly? It's completely you can be complete based upon what Scripture tells you that it wants you to do or what God wants you to do and be. You don't need anything extraneous. You don't need anything else. And in fact, if we bring those things over, we're now adding to the Word of God and we're not uh, acting by faith anymore. We're acting by what it is that we feel like um, uh, is lacking in the gospel. The Bible's complete. The gospel is complete. And our, our response is to be obedient. As for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. You might also look at uh, 2 verse 15. 2 verse 15. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. I told you to take a look at Titus and how Titus uses the word speaking and uses the word uh, teaching and uses the word that's going to help somebody better understand the way of the Lord, right? And so chapter 2 and verse 1, as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. 2.15, here's a bookend. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one despise you. Just a brief outline on the book and then we'll come back and jump into chapter 1. Chapter 1 is about appointing qualified leaders. Appointing qualified leaders. Who do we read about Titus being... Um, uh, Titus being admonished or commanded to um, put in every city, every city. What's chapter one all about? It's about elders. It's about overseers. It's about uh, presbyteros. It's about um, the ones who uh, meet these qualifications being appointed in every city there in Crete. Okay. So chapter one, appoint qualified leaders. Chapter two and chapter three are all about setting things in order. It's all about setting things in order, the entire epistle. Appoint elders in every city, chapter 1. But chapter 2 and chapter 3 especially are setting things in order. As we mentioned, chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. Speaking the things that are proper for sound doctrine. Here's what sound doctrine looks like, chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. Setting things in order, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. What do good works look like? Based upon what we've just said here, what it maintained in good works look like? Chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, and then the conclusion, 12 through 15.
Notice a couple of things before we jump into um, the bulk of what we're going to jump into here. Look at the introduction of chapter 1 and appointing qualified leaders. Verses 1 through 4 is the introduction to this book. And you can learn a whole lot about Paul and about what it is that he really wants to communicate um, in the epistle and a lot about his person and the way he views himself based upon how he describes himself. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect um, and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness. Just from that opening statement, Paul is talking about... Uh, here he is a bondservant of God. Here he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He has this commission by the Lord in order to do some things. What is his responsibility? According to the faith of God's elect, the acknowledgement of truth which accords in godliness. What he wants to communicate more than anything else is about the faith of God's elect. Here we are sitting here and what is it that's going to keep us on the right course? Well, it's faith. What is our faith based upon? Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Here's your faith. It's according to the faith of God's elect. This is what Paul's devoted to. This is what he's trying to communicate more than anything else. The faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of truth. Okay, if something is true, I want to grab onto that. I want to hold on to that and I want to study that and I want that to affect my life. I don't want to walk around living my life by something that's not true. Do you? I don't want to live my life by a false belief, expecting that this is going to be something that's going to enrich my life and make life better. And especially when we talk about the faith that we've been given by Jesus Christ, I don't want to believe something that's not true. Do you? We want to hold on to the faith that we've already bought into and the truth which is able to change our lives and also the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with, which is joined hand in hand with godliness. A growth formula here in chapter 1, verse 1, just right off the bat, is faith, knowledge, godliness. What's our faith going to do? Is it going to sit and stagnate? Is it going to go back unto perdition? Is it going to be something that's going to enrich our lives and to help us to live more godly in Christ Jesus? We start off with our faith, but we add to that what? Our knowledge. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3.18. We let that faith grow with more knowledge, and then that knowledge accords itself joins hands in hand with holy behavior, godliness. What does that sound like? It sounds like another epistle that we've studied already uh, back towards the very beginning. Anybody remember? Peter, which one? Second Peter chapter 1, 5 through 8. Also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith, virtue, virtue, Knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness. There's three of the words that we found already just right here in verse 1. Uh, godliness, brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness, love. All of these things are encompassed, if you want to just boil it down to these three words, faith, knowledge, and godliness. He goes on and talks about the gospel in miniature. 
What's God's plan for saving mankind? Verses 2 and 3. God, who in, uh, sorry, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. What did he promise? He promised the eternal life, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, through the heralding of that message, which was committed to me, Paul says, according to the commandment of God, our Savior. What's God's will for the way that his message goes forth? He promised eternal life before time began. To who? To God's elect. Who are the elect? Those who hear the word and are obedient. Those who hear the word and respond the way God wants them to. They are the elect. Now, elect is not something, a word that we need to be scared of. There's a lot of people that misuse the word to talk about God choosing, God's going to elect you, kind of like the way we elect the president. And the way it is is that God chooses you, and if that means God chooses you, it means he doesn't choose somebody else. But the truth is, brothers and sisters, is that we all have the opportunity to be God's elect. It's like the, the old kickball illustration where you have two kids and they're, uh, they're picking sides. And you're going to pick Doug and Doug's going to be on my team. All right, you pick and I'm going to pick Steve. And, and, over, and over and over and over, we're going to pick those things. What God has said is everybody that wants to be on my team can be on my team. You come out and you be my elect. You be the ones that are on my team. It's not a mystical thing. We're all called by the gospel. We're all called to inherit this eternal life which God promised before time began. But here's the deal. Our responsibility as Christians, our responsibility as ministers is to let people know you can be on God's team. That's the plan of God. And how, do, how does somebody do that? Hearing the word of God, which is about what? Which is about who? It's about Jesus. What's your key statement? God's grace is seen through the Savior's message for man to be instructed about faith and works. You can be on God's team through faith in Jesus. How does that faith show itself? shows itself in obedience and doing what God has said. And so just in these two verses, here's the plan of God. He wants each one of us to have eternal life. He doesn't want anybody to, uh, anybody to be lost, 2 Peter 3, 9. And as we accept the gospel message, we come into a right relationship with God, and we have promised to us that eternal life. But how is somebody going to know if they don't have somebody like, well, Paul here to preach to them and tell them that they can be on God's team, so to speak, that they can be justified by faith and be under God's grace. That's the responsibility. In just this simple verse, God says, for those who are the elect, grow. Grow in your faith and your knowledge and your godliness. I'm appointed for the purpose of preaching so that more people can come to know God and come to have this promise of eternal life with God who cannot lie, promised before time began. We haven't bought into a lie. We haven't bought into a God that's going to change his word. God God can't lie. It's against his very nature. As he goes on and he begins to talk about the qualifications, about why it was that he left Titus and Crete there in verse 5. 
For this reason I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city just as I have commanded you. Did you ever ask the question why Paul wanted Titus to stay here in Crete and appoint these elders? Why these elders are appointed in the first place? And we know the position of elders, a lot of us, because we've been Christians for years and we've seen what they do. We see how it is that they spiritually shepherd and guide and those things. What are the specific reasons why Paul gives that these elders are to be appointed here in Crete? Okay, examples. Again, where am I going to point to as far as this goes in order to say why specifically did he want these elders to be um, over these congregations here in every city? Again, we know the purpose for elders, and but a lot of times what I believe we do is we just look at the qualifications and say, okay, this is what uh, qualifies a man to be shepherd, and never look at the job description of what it is that he's designed to do here in these specific cities. What's the purpose? A couple of things. Note his qualifications here. There is a sexual morality example to what he's saying there in verse 6. There's a morality in uh, how he views the way God um, has fashioned and how, how God has put together the home. The sexual morality is a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of dis, uh, dissipation or insubordination. This is a one-woman man. This is a man who has his morals and his values sexually right. He's not a runaround guy. He's not a uh, more than one-woman man. He's not a man who's... Um, who's looking uh, for the bigger, better deal, as my, my college roommate talked about. He's a husband of one wife. But note, it's also about his family leadership. Children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. Anybody have a different translation there? Rebellion. What else? Wild and disobedient. There you go. Okay, you got an elder who doesn't have children that are wild and disobedient. He's got family leadership. When you're looking at a man in his home, he's a one woman man. He loves his wife. He's trying to love her according to Ephesians chapter 5, 22 and following about how Christ loves the church. And as he's living his life, he's preparing and uh, giving his children biblical guidance and pointing them to the scriptures and helping them to realize that there's consequences for, the, for their actions. There's family leadership. There's a section in here talking about his general character, verse 7. A bishop must be blameless, the steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover for what's good and sober-minded, a lover of what's good, sober-minded, just, holy, and self-controlled. All of those things are not how skillful he is as business. All of those things are not how high on the social scale he's gotten. All of those things are matters of character and integrity. All of those things are a matter of who that man is at his heart and at his core. Why is that important? Why is God more concerned that a man be a man of character and integrity rather than um, on the who's who list? Or, all right, an example of who we should follow. His work is spiritual in nature. His work is spiritual in nature. I've been a lot of men's business meetings over the years, and I've been in a lot of elders' meetings over the years. And there are some times whenever the physical can primarily dominate 
what should be a very spiritual meaning to where it is that we're talking about what color the carpet should be in the auditorium or what color the songbook should be and, 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 and worried about the implications as opposed to looking at people's souls and saying, this brother, this sister is not what they ought to be. This brother, sister is really struggling in their faith. And an entire meeting has gone by, again, in eldership meetings that I've been in and, and, and been privileged to sit in, where a lot of things are overlooked because, well, we get dominated by the physical. When you're looking at a man who has these things and is growing the way that he ought to in his faith, in his knowledge, in his godliness, you're going to have a man who emphasizes these things here in verses 7 and 8 as far as the general character go because his work is spiritual in nature, as Alan mentioned, because he is an example, as, as Roger mentioned, in the congregation of what it is that we ought to follow. You know, Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Um, we want to be people that are looking to the right kind of examples, and it ought to be that elders are men that we can say, I can follow this guy's example. I can follow who he's trying to be. Note there's a sexual morality, verse 6. There's family leadership uh, at the end of verse 6. There's general character, verse 7 through 8. But 9, he also, Titus, or Paul emphasizes his skill as a teacher. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine to exhort and convict those who contradict. Who are we talking about? Here's an elder being able to hold up what's right and being able to hold up sound doctrine and hold on to those things that he's received. Why? Because there's people who are contradictory in what's right, uh, contradictory to what's right. Verse 10 explains, for, here's an explanation, there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. I mentioned at the very beginning, one should pay attention to the speaking words. Who's speaking, what they're saying, what it is that they ought to be saying, and who ought to be saying things to them that may not necessarily be saying those things. Make sense? Um, <laughs> verse 9, the elders ought to be able to buy sound doctrine, here's the standard, both to exhort and convict. There's words of teaching. There's words of instruction. Why? Because there's others, verse 10, who are idle talkers and deceivers. Verse 11, their mouths must be stopped. They subvert whole households. They're teaching things that they ought not. That's another uh, instruction word for the sake of dishonest gain. He even quotes from a, uh, a, a common source or secular source there. One of them, prophet of their own, said, here's somebody that's going to say something. Well, Cretans are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke. There's an instruction word. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Why is it important that an elder has these qualities from the book of Titus? Because there's people, the implication is these are people that the Christians have to deal with. There are people who are in the church speaking things that they ought not. 
people that are deceiving, people that are, especially he mentions those of the circumcision. Who are we talking about? We're talking about Jewish Christians. Was this a problem in the first century? If you have somebody coming along saying, well, you could be a good Christian if you would just accept Jesus and also be circumcised. You see, part of the, uh, the sign that we're uh, in a covenant with God is because of circumcision, so therefore you Gentiles, you know, you're just not really fully following Jesus. And they're teaching things that they ought not, and Paul says their motives are less than honest. They're teaching things, subverting these households for dishonest gain. How might somebody gain something if it was that they were teaching something like this? What do you think? What would be the advantage of telling a, uh, a Greek or a Gentile, just an ethnic person that's a non-Jew, as they come into Christianity that they need circumcision or they need um, elements of the old law to hold on to, otherwise they're not really fully following Jesus or they're not really fully following God? What would be the advantage or... How might somebody gain dishonestly from that? Okay, maybe it is that we're going to bring over elements of the Old Testament tithe or maybe pay taxes to a particular uh, unit or organization in order to um, say that they're, they're part of that. That could be. You buy into something somebody's saying. If you really have a, well, a respect for somebody as a teacher or a preacher or somebody else like that, and somebody you respect says, you know, I question your salvation. I question uh, the legitimacy of what you've come out of the religious world. Now, I remember that you used to be a pagan. You used to worship at the temple of you know, Diana or Zeus or whoever. And I appreciate the change that you've made, but you know, I'm questioning your, your discipleship. Well, this is somebody that I respect. This is somebody that I really appreciate their, their life. And, and, and what, what do I need to do? Well, if you are sincere about following Jesus, you know what you really need? You really need to be circumcised. You really need to change your attitude and your, uh, your stance towards the old law and towards uh, these things. Yes, I know salvation is through Christ, but the way that we show that we're genuinely following is that we need these elements of the old law in order to bring them over in order to, to do those things. Well, okay, I'll do that. Well, as they're doing those things, well, maybe that person is able to exert now a stronger influence over somebody else that's willing to... Isn't that the way, the way things work sometimes? Am I just speaking here? That if you're listening to somebody and they're not telling you what's right, it may be that they're patting you on the back the whole way and saying, you are doing such a wonderful job and you're doing the, now what you need to do is this over here. Now what you need to do is this over here. And before too long, you've got somebody who is a disciple of whoever it is they're listening to as opposed to a disciple of, well, Jesus. You know, dishonest gain, yes, in this context, may absolutely mean some monetary uh, uh, influence or monetary uh, gain. But, you know, what about the gain that is to have somebody that's, being a disciple of you as opposed to being a disciple of Jesus. Does that ever hold sway on anybody to have people patting you on the back and saying, what a spiritual person you are, or those things? Yes, Doug. Yes. 
Right. Yes. Okay. Uh, well, Ephesus is where he's, uh, yeah, I'm talking about there in, in uh, Acts 20. But yeah, um, what Doug is saying is that when you have somebody that leads you away from the doctrine that accords with Christ, that, that is the doctrine that's going to be part of that eternal life that God promised before time began in chapter 1, verse 2. When you have somebody that leads you away from that, that is what Paul called a savage wolf to the elders there at, uh, or at Miletus, Speaking to the elders of Ephesus, right? <laughs> a lot, a lot of places, but I think we got it. Okay, but so what he's talking about is here's people that are insubordinate, here's people that are idle talkers, here's the people that are leading people down the wrong path. And what specifically does he want Titus to put in place so that those people, their mouths can be stopped? It's the elders. That's exactly right. In context. That's one of the primary responsibilities of those men. Yes, sir. Okay. Right. That's very true. Alan mentions that uh, Crete was, by and large, a Gentile place. And as, again, we don't have any record of influx of Jewish, uh, Jewish teachers or anything like that, but it could be that there were some that came over in order to try and teach, and it might have been that as they had, those Jewish Christians had adopted more Cretan lifestyles, uh, such as verse 12 talks about being liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. It could be that they wanted somebody to support them for their uh, for their livelihood. Sadly, I mean, things like that still happen today. Um, you know, the preaching school that I went to, I had 12 classmates or 11 classmates. I was the 12th. And there were some, sadly, that were just using that to support their kind of their... Um, uh, well, kind of as a meal ticket, so to speak. They were going to preaching school because they didn't want to go to college. And so um, as those young men were there, uh, I just couldn't fathom the fact that there were Christians who were supporting them to be there, but they just wouldn't exercise themselves to growing the way that Christ wanted them to grow. And uh, it seems to be, it might be some kind of uh, a similar parallel here as far as uh, these early Christians. Again, <laughs> We think that we're so far removed from these things, but we're really not. There's a, there's a lot of these problems. Yes, sir. Yes. Right. And there's nothing that's going to divide the congregation faster than unsound doctrine. 
You know, and what's the purpose for these elders? Stop their mouths. Paul doesn't pull any punches. He says their mouths must be stopped, verse 11. One of the things I found interesting here in this section, look at verse 10. He says there are many insubordinate. Question, where have I seen this word before? Same chapter. You jump back up to verse 6. A man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of, what would you say, Jim? Wild and woolly? Wild and... Wild and disobedient, okay? Not accused of dissipation or insubordination. Here's a question. Does that characteristic of an elder in his service mean more whenever you're looking at what his purpose is here in the church in Crete than it would just if it said children can't be accused of dissipation or insubordination and then just moved on? As he comes back to that word down here in the context, why is it important that he has his children not accused of dissipation or insubordination? Does that have any bearing on what his job and his responsibility is? Why? All right, there's a matter of walk your talk, okay? Um, here's a man who's trying to tell somebody else how to live, and he's got the same problem in his own household. Debbie, did you have something? I, I saw your mouth open just a second ago. I wasn't sure if it was. Okay, um, but yeah, that's exactly right. Here's a man with this problem in his household, and he's going and he's trying to talk to a fellow Christian who's teaching these things and who's behaving this way and saying, listen, you can't be a... What does he say again? A liar and evil beast and lazy glutton anymore. You can't open your mouth to tell somebody what's wrong anymore. You can't treat things like this. And he's got a child at home that's lazy and insubordinate, that's an idle talker, and that's all of those things that he just mentioned. What does that do to his influence? It degrades it big time. How come? His character is not quality that you would need if he can't take care of this his own household. Here's the other thing. How trusted could this man be to handle this situation faithfully if it is that he is not able to handle it in his own house? Again, maybe his attitude towards his kids or towards the children that are, um, again, if we're talking about a man who doesn't meet the qualification of verse 6, He's got children that are accused of being wild and reckless or wild and woolly and uh, that are uh, accused of dissipation and insubordination. And he's got a habit of just ignoring. He's got a habit of just uh, non-confrontation. I'm just going to push this off on mom and try and let mom handle this. And the kids continue down that cycle and continue not being what they ought to be. And now this man has got to go and handle the same problem in the congregation, the local church. Again, would the track record say anything about how that might be handled there presently? Just a thought. The same way that he might handle that at home might be the same way that he would handle that 
if it occurred there in the church. Um, this testimony is true, verse 12, verse 13. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, there's another teaching word, that they may be sound in the faith. There are some people that you need to be very gentle with. There are some people that may be struggling in their faith, yes? And if somebody were to go and really just hammer it home and just beat on them, beat on them and beat on them and say, you need to get your life right, you need to do what's right, then what's going to happen to those people in the faith? Well, they're going to be discouraged. They're going to be even more inclined to maybe want to give up. There are some people that you want to handle with care and people that you want to tell the truth to and be as loving as you possibly can and be as kind as you possibly can to be as patient as you possibly can. Again, folks, we're not talking about Christians that are struggling in their faith. We're talking about somebody who is self-willed and self-pompous or so full of themselves that they feel like that they can make a rule where Christ has not made a rule where they can ask somebody to pull on to something that was of an element of the old law and add that to your Christianity, and they are leading people astray. This is not somebody who's struggling in their faith. This is somebody who has, in a lot of respects, rejected the faith. This is somebody, as Doug Bynes characterized from Acts 20, is a savage wolf. He says they need a different approach. Rebuke them sharply. You need to stop teaching what you're teaching. You need to stop telling people this. You need to stop behaving this way. Otherwise, it is that we're going to have to withdraw fellowship from you. We're going to have to, well, as Paul would tell Timothy, to hand these people over to Satan that they, for the destruction of the flesh, that they may learn not to blaspheme, to speak against God, what God said. There's a different approach for false teachers than there is for somebody who's struggling in their faith. And God forbid we mix up the two. <laughs> Questions or comments about that? Even yes. Sure. Yes. And there may be some people that are sincere, but have just something mixed up spiritually. Again, we're not talking about a false teacher. Not everything that somebody says is immediately false teaching. It may not necessarily be true, and they just may be mixed up and need somebody to take them aside, like Apollos, as Alan mentioned, and teach them more the way more fully. But there's something different about somebody with their intent, with their heart, to deceive somebody else, to grab onto them and forge the sake of dishonest gain, to grab onto that and lead somebody astray. That's different. That's different. And Paul says... This is a responsibility here in chapter 1 of elders to do this. Our time is up, and we're thankful so much for your attendance here this morning and your participation, and hope this has been helpful for you.